Welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. And this is William Lane Craig welcomes you to his cult. Let Uncle Damo tell you a story. About 20 years ago, my wife and I went to what was ostensibly a timeshare presentation on the conditional promise of a free holiday. Now, I say ostensibly because it was timeshare in all but name. You didn't buy the right to a property, you purchased holiday credits, not to one property, but to numerous within the chain that this company ran. And it wasn't permanent, it was a 99-year lease that you rented into. As they say, you can put lipstick on a pig, and you know the rest. But there was one thing about this presentation that stuck out, and that was that the woman giving the presentation kept on referring to us as lovelies and dear friends and wonderful people. She was what I would call toxically positive. Now, I had heard about the concept of timeshare from other people and read horror stories about it, but this was my first direct experience with it, and what was being presented confirmed the crummy reputation timeshare has, and then it struck me. She was being toxically positive in order to make the crummy product she was selling look good to anyone who wasn't discerning enough. She was being toxically positive to prevent people from thinking too deeply about what was on offer, because anyone who honestly analysed the deal on offer would have gone, what a waste of money. Her toxic positivity showed a severe detachment from the reality of the situation. Aside from the fact that what she was selling wasn't that great, we weren't her friends, she barely knew anyone in the room from a bar of soap, she had no idea if we were wonderful people, and it got to the point that I wondered if she was in a sales cult. And that is exactly the same feeling I got when I watched this video of William Lane Craig trying to describe the Christian life for new Christians. While he's not as toxically positive or as efficacious as that woman trying to sell me timeshare 20 years ago, he shows the same detachment from reality. Not only is he talking about nothings and things that don't add up when you analyse them, but also the message is so positive that you just have to wonder what is hiding. To the point that I can't help but think, William Lane Craig is part of a cult, and this is his message for new inductees. Now, I want to say straight up that I'm not using the academic definition of a cult here. I'm using the common pejorative definition 
that would describe a socially and intellectually repressive fundamentalist religious group. So, with that out of the way, let's see what old mate Bill Craig has to say. Hit the intro. I'm Deborah Grace, author of the book Crucifying the Bible, available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Ad Podcast. We are victim of illusion. You are listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast. And the next 30 seconds are brought to you by our album Invisible Light, available at our Bandcamp website. So far from lies and So you've just become a Christian. The moment you responded to Christ, a number of things happened to you. First, you were given new life. New life? New life sounds very culty in and of itself. Using the analogy of someone coming up to you on the street... If someone came up to you on the street and said, God has given me new life, I think the only appropriate response would be good for you. I can certainly think of some inappropriate responses, mind you, but you would think that that person was in some sort of weird fundamentalist religious group, right? Because let's ask, does new life mean anything tangible? Is it a literal new life? Like, if we hooked a person at a revival meeting up to an EEG and an ECG and measured their vitals at the very moment they became a Christian, would we see a momentary pause when the old life ends and the new life kicks in? If we ran a Christian and an atheist through an MRI or a DNA testing procedure, would there be any molecular or genetic difference between the two? If the answer to either of those questions is no, then Bill Craig or anyone who believes in his version of Christianity can't say new life is an actual thing, and therefore the statement you were given new life just becomes a term to make you feel better about a decision you made. If your retort is then new life doesn't refer to your physical body. Okay, does it refer to something psychological? I personally understand the psychological change that feeling accepted in a religious group bestows upon someone. However, 
I also know that same psychological slash emotional change can come about by numerous other things, be it meditation, therapy, drugs, a new job, a holiday, etc. So I then need to ask the probing question, what psychological effect does accepting Christ and being given new life bring that also can't be achieved by non-Christian or secular means? Or let's say that new life refers to neither mental nor physical attributes. Does new life then refer to your spirit? If you say yes, then you're starting to speak of nothings and things that have no grounding in reality and can't be determined or measured, one of the hallmarks of religious cults. It becomes even more culty if, in this new life, you are compelled to make moral decisions and actions fixated around these intangible, immaterial, and undefinable things, especially on fear of punishment or divine disapproval. In my best estimation, new life is merely a euphemism for feel differently about things, or a new outlook on life. The problem? You can get feel differently about things or new outlook on life after, for example, being in a car accident, being chronically sick, taking a holiday, jumping out of a plane, etc., etc. Or even worse, New life is nothing more than a euphemism to make you pretend you've been magically changed and get you to really, really, really believe you haven't made a bad decision. And if your reply to that is, It's indescribable! <laughs> you got that right. You began a relationship with God that will last forever. I can't tell if this is once-saved-always-saved theology, or some sort of dog-whistle to the toxic fundamentalist you-weren't-ever-a-true-Christian mantra. Once-saved-always-saved means that after I die, given I was considered by all around me to be a spirit-baptized Christian, and now I'm not, there's going to be a very awkward encounter between me and God. And if you're not familiar with you weren't ever a true Christian, what I mean by that is the common response by fundamentalists when I tell them I used to be a Christian and now I'm not a believer. Their typical response is, You weren't a true Christian as a way of deflecting honest and valid criticism of their theology. You weren't a true Christian. Everyone in my church thought I was. Well, they were deceived. And the leaders in that church, local, national and international, they all thought I was a Christian. It must have been a church full of fake Christians. And all my Christian friends in other churches and at my university thought I was a Christian as well. They were also deceived. 
that sure is a lot of deceived Christians. So tell me, how do I know you're not a fake Christian? I read the Bible! Well, so did I, cover to cover multiple times, and I even read the Bible now as an atheist. I pray daily! Well, so did I. I even led prayer meetings. I go to church! Well, so did I, for over 15 years. True Christians serve as part of the church community. Like helping out in three different ministries? Because that's what I did. They believe in Jesus. Just like I did. They don't just believe in Jesus, they believe on Jesus. What does believing on Jesus mean? It means you trust him with all your heart and mind and soul. You mean like I did when I had dying relatives? When I was in tax debt? When I had my own health crisis where I eschewed professional help? By that definition, I believed on Jesus as well. Shut up, you liar! True story. So, if a Christian's relationship with God will last forever, it means that, as a former Christian, I'm either going to be forced to stay for eternity in heaven against my will, or it means that my psyche and my ego will be completely changed or removed from what makes me me, meaning it won't actually be me in heaven, just someone with my name, or I was never a true Christian in the first place. Second, you gained a new status before God. You went from being under God's just condemnation to being fully pardoned of all your sins. Okay, this one is a bit of a long one, so give me some time. Firstly, I don't know about you, but I don't consider God's moral judgment and therefore his condemnation to be just. I mean, if Saddam Hussein was standing in front of you and said, you are a very evil person, you just laugh it off. I know I would. Or if Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, smacked you around the ear hole and said, hey, this guy's a pervert, you tell him to rack off. But for some reason, a deity whose kill totals are orders of magnitude greater than Hussein, Bin Laden, Mao Zedong, and Hitler combined, a deity who stands by while children are shot in American schools, and a deity who watches while evil priests destroy the innocence of the most vulnerable that is the one who gets to judge me? Stuff that. And here comes one of the strongest reasons I say modern Christianity, and in particular William Lane Craig's version of it, is a cult. The defences that get trotted out by apologists, both professional and unprofessional, to ensure God looks morally good and suffers no reproach. In most cults, be they religious, political, or corporate, there's usually an implicit, and sometimes even an explicit, maxim that the ultimate leader of the group slash organization 
who or whatever it is, be it a deity, a business guru, a self-styled priest, a movement leader, etc., shall not be criticised that you must rebut any criticism of the ultimate leader because you are then doing your duty. Any and all criticism of the ultimate leader is filtered to be thought of as coming from immoral or ignorant viewpoints. The ultimate leader is not to be held accountable for any actions that have negative consequences or were brought about by immoral means, and any argument, no matter how tenuous or fallacious, is not only acceptable, but also necessary, as long as it leads to the ultimate leader keeping their halo intact. So, relating all that to modern Protestant fundamentalism, there clearly seems to be a requirement, or if not a requirement, certainly a mindset, to not only not put the character of God under scrutiny, but also to challenge any critics and criticism of the faith to the point that coming to honest conclusions that God has done wrong is clearly the wrong answer change your rebellious heart and sinful mind and try again. And as we see with the industry of apologetics, rehashing a 400-year-old argument by asking, what if you're wrong, is the gold standard. And just as an example of the reluctance by Christians to criticize God for his actions or his inactions, When we look at situations like the final solution or the great leap forward, we rightly criticize the mentality that caused millions of deaths. But when we read about things in the Bible, like the worldwide flood of Noah, the plague on the firstborn children of Egypt, or of the genocide described in 1 Samuel 15, where Israel was instructed to kill the Amalekites, even the children and infants, Christians come up with all sorts of excuses. You may have come across some from this list. I don't understand enough to know why God wanted those children dead. God's ways are higher than our ways. How dare you put God in the witness stand and make yourself judge over your creator? God commanded Israel to kill the children so they wouldn't grow up to take revenge on Israel. By forcibly kidnapping the little girls of Midian, the Israelite men were elevating their rights because now those little girls had a man who was responsible for their welfare. If there was a violent gang on the street, wouldn't you kill them to keep your community safe? God is a God of justice and he needs to punish sin. Atheism can't account for logic and reason. All life is a loan from God and God decides when it comes back to him. And maybe the ultimate in both bad theodicy and culty apologetics... Now, the more difficult problem is the children. 
how could God command that the children be killed because these are innocent? And I think what I would want to say there is that God has the right to give and take life as he sees fit. Children die all the time, every day. Uh, people's lives are cut short. God is under no obligation whatsoever to prolong anyone's life another second. So he has the right to give and take life as he chooses. Moreover, if you believe, as I do, in the salvation of infants or children who die, what that meant was that these the, the death of these children meant their salvation. They were the recipients of an infinite good as a result of their earthly phase of life being terminated. Excuses. Culty excuses. Especially to believe this horrific notion that children being slaughtered in a literal massacre is the gateway to the best thing that could ever happen to them. Not only that, but thinking that the best thing that could ever happen to a child is to spend eternity with the same God that wanted you and your parents dead. Alongside that, William Lane Craig writes on his blog that the real victims of the genocides described in the Old Testament were the Israelite soldiers who perpetrated the genocide. To not only believe all this, but even to stand up there and be willing to say in public in the first place, you have to have your moral compass skewed so severely that you've lost your morality and sacrificed your humanity. Alongside losing touch with reality along the way, maybe this is the culmination of having PhDs in Christian theology and Christian apologetics. But this is what being in a religious cult requires you to do. Come up with a way to make the bad guy look like the good guy. Because when you're in the cult, no matter what your guy does, your guy is the good guy. Your guy can literally have children killed. But you have to keep telling everybody he's the good guy, be it by omission, hiding all the bad shit that God did, or by obfuscation, pretending that all the bad shit God did wasn't so bad. Imagine if someone in this day and age said that Hitler was morally justified in everything he did, that Hitler's teachings are timeless words of truth we should live our lives by, and that the real victims of the Holocaust were the Nazi soldiers. We shouldn't feel sorry for the Jews, because they got what they deserved when they rejected Christ 2,000 years ago. And by the way, there are preachers around today who say just that. Check out episode 44, the King James Bible debate, where Mitch Knupp says as such. And don't feel sorry for the children who were gassed or shot in the concentration camps, because they get to go to heaven to be with God, just without their parents. 
but it's those poor, poor soldiers who mistreated the Jews and performed experiments on them and forced them to work in labour camps to the point of starvation. They're the real victims here. And before you think this Nazi Holocaust analogy is far-fetched, let's remind ourselves that this is what William Lane Craig is in effect saying. William Lane Craig is not condemning the authority figure in charge of all this. Hell no! He's on the side of the authority figure that commissioned this. And he's clearly fine with entire people groups being killed in a barbaric manner because they're just getting what they deserve. And it doesn't matter that innocent children, and he himself said the children were innocent, that they were sliced and hacked and cut open because he's comforted himself with the idea that those children received an infinite good. No, the real victim here is the Israelite foot soldiers who did the slicing and dicing. Cry me a river. As soon as you start making excuses, whose only purpose is to deflect moral blame from God, and you wouldn't accept those same excuses for other deities or other figures in history, congratulations. You're in a cult. Second, aside from his own pronouncement, how is God's moral judgment, and therefore his moral condemnation, just? Against what standard is God's moral judgment measured? If the answer is his own, then we're at moral relativism but now with an archaic book to read. Which leads to the question, by what standard does God judge right and wrong? Now, if you think I'm about to play the Euthyphro Dilemma card, you're damn right. I've never heard an apologist give a coherent answer for how God judges right and wrong that doesn't devolve to the same moral relativism that apologists like Frank Turek bleat is a problem for atheists. Even William Lane Craig himself tries, laughably, to get around the Christian challenge of the Euthyphro Dilemma by saying, God judges right and wrong by his very own nature. I think, however, that the Euthyphro Dilemma is a false dilemma because there's a third alternative. It's not the case that God's will something because it is good, nor is it the case that something is good just because God wills it. Rather, God wills something because he is good. That is to say, it is God's own nature which determines what is the good. But this then begs the question, who or what made God to have the nature that he does? If your answer is that it's self-evident, then why can't secular morality also be self-evident? And not only do responses like William Lane Craig's beg the question of how God decides morality, 
But it also means God is not all-powerful or able to choose what he wants to do. If God is constrained by his nature and is incapable of evil, it actually means that humans, being capable of both good and evil, have more free will than the God that made the humans. And if God cannot do or is absolutely incapable of evil, then he cannot rationally or logically call anything he does good because he cannot consider any alternative to compare against. It also turns God into a moral robot, meaning God can only carry out a specific set of actions in accordance with a predefined criteria. And the elephant in the room here is that in a God-defined morality, morality and ethics are not about helping people live happier and more productive lives where unnecessary suffering is reduced. Morality boils down to not pissing off God. In fact, William Lane Craig himself agrees God's morality is completely arbitrary. And it seems to me that it's entirely within God's prerogative to set up even arbitrary rules for how he wants people to live. If God wanted to prohibit the eating of beans, I can't see that that wouldn't be his prerogative. It would be his right to say, thou shalt not eat beans. And guess what groups have moral frameworks that are decided by the whims of an ultimate authority figure with very little in the way of flexibility and implement a my way or the highway mentality? Say it with me now, cults! Just as an extra thing to think about, if a Christian and an atheist are walking along the street and decide not to steal from the homeless man they see on the street, the atheist saying, I don't want to steal from that man because I don't want to inflict unnecessary suffering, and the Christian saying, I don't want to steal from that man because I don't want to inflict unnecessary suffering, but then also adds, besides, God says stealing is a sin, and I don't want sin weighing me down then both people have arrived at the same conclusion, but one got there quicker because they're not carrying any baggage. Third, even assuming that God's moral judgment is just, what about God's existence and his apparent moral perfection grant him authority over us? Why should God's mere existence compel us to obey him? I mean, I exist. Why is my judgment not considered supreme and authoritative? If your response here is, Your judgment isn't perfect like God's. Congratulations, you've just endorsed multiple instances of genocide. But let's go a little deeper. If we think about it, even assuming that God exists and has perfect moral judgment, 
there's nothing about God existing and having perfect moral judgment that compels us to obey him, aside from weight of force. We must do what God says, otherwise he will destroy us in a lake of fire or turn us into a river of blood, as per the book of Revelation. Fourth, if we are under God's just condemnation, but God gives us an opportunity to repent and escape that condemnation, then either God hasn't or God isn't committed to the judgment he is apparently rightly giving us. It's like a judge who convicts you, but then lets you walk free anyway to commit more crimes. I find you, the defendant, guilty of the most heinous crimes possible. As a punishment, I'm going to sit here and scowl at you. Um, is that all you're going to do? I'm scowling intensely at you. Feel my wrath. If that's all, I'll just see myself out. Thank you very much. You can't go. I'm giving you time to say sorry for all the heinous things you did. But you just judged me for the heinous things I supposedly did and didn't give me a chance to defend myself. I'm willing to put that behind us. You should have put that behind us before you judged me. By the way, what heinous crimes did I commit? You refused to believe in the God that died for you. So why is God holding back? If he condemns us because we're under his just condemnation, but gives us time to repent to escape the consequence of that condemnation, then he hasn't or isn't fully committed to the judgment that God, as a God of justice, is supposed to give us like he's conflicted about whether to condemn us or to reconcile with us. And this, again, highlights just how arbitrary God's morality is. Just and condemnation aren't relative to some degree of societal harm that we as humans cause ourselves. In the Christian framework, it's all simply relative to how God feels. In fact, God could turn around tomorrow and say, Anyone who hasn't robbed a bank will be under my just condemnation. And if you reply with, God would never do that, I'd kindly ask you to point to a Bible verse that says that to back up your point. So either God has judged us, or he will judge us in the future but it can't be both. You can't say God has justly judged and condemned you, but then also say that God will judge you when you die, so you better repent. Theologians need to decide if God wants to forgive us or to condemn us. If he wants to condemn us, he shouldn't sit there and wait for us to beg and grovel to be forgiven. If he wants to forgive us, 
he shouldn't rush to judgment and condemnation of us fallible and limited humans in the first place to require the forgiveness. And if you then reply, God made it easy to forgive us by condemning his son on our behalf, then one, God only has himself to blame for making a morality system so convoluted that he had to sacrifice himself to himself to fix it up. And second, go to the police station and slap yourself in the face to see if that pays your wife's speeding fine. Oh? You just realise punishing yourself doesn't fix someone else's problems? Who would have thought? Point number five. What is there to stop God from changing his mind by revoking his forgiveness and putting Christians back under condemnation? For example, what if God decides to implement a new, new covenant that spelt trouble for Protestant Christians now? In the same way, that Jews rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus apparently led them to say, may his blood be on our heads and on our children. And if you believe some fundamentalist preachers, Hitler gave them their comeuppance. Now, there are Christian groups such as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe God has implemented said new, new covenant. But putting those aside... We see time and time again in the Bible that God keeps on changing the covenant he operates under. There was the Noahide covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, then the new covenant which supposedly nullifies all the previous ones, except where it doesn't, like gay sex for example. And now, a word from our sponsors. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Hey there, tall, friendly atheist dad. Hey, you're the man, and thanks for letting me hop on your show to talk a little bit about my podcast and what I'm doing, and allow to give me an opportunity to talk to some of your listeners. Well, guys, if you're listening to this, well, hello, heathens. Well, my name, I'm the Skeptical Ghost Heathen, and my show is called The History of Religions and Their Gods. Now, let me ask you something. If you're something like me, do you enjoy scriptural criticism and the dark, evil history that lurks behind the cross? The flimsy cross made of balsa wood called Christianity? Well, I do, and I talk about it a lot. And I talk about it over four seasons. And I've got about 30,000 people across the globe that are listening to the show now, and we talk about it day in and day out. And I would love to talk about it with you as well. If you get a chance, check it out. The History of Religions and Their Gods. So, imagine a Jew in ancient Israel who is trying to earn God's favor by observing the sacrificial, the Sabbath, and the clothing requirements imposed under the Mosaic Covenant, and then said Jew time travels to modern America to see some guy in jeans and a t-shirt that quotes Isaiah 714 while eating a Friday night bacon cheeseburger with his buddies. 
that hypothetical time-traveling Jew will think the shift his God has undergone is just as impossible as the shift your God needs to implement a new new covenant that involves people coming back under widespread condemnation writ large. And number six, my final point under this topic. What happens when a Christian sins? Will they go back under just condemnation? If sin isn't enough to take someone from being forgiven back to just condemnation, then sin was never the problem. The problem is God's arbitrary opinion of us. If God is willing to overlook the sin of those who he loves, but hold sin against those who he hates, then it's not sin that separates us from God. It's God who separates us from God. And if your reply here is that Jesus intercedes with God on behalf of the Christian so they can be forgiven of their sins. That just proves my point. Sin itself was never the problem. Third, you were adopted into a new family as a child of God. You now belong to a huge and incredibly diverse global family. This point is probably William Lane Craig's best one. Christianity is indeed a diverse family in terms of not only race, but also in terms of socioeconomics and political affiliations. And while Christianity is essentially a Western religion, to the point that it's now basically a business, anyone from anywhere can be a Christian. I would, however, argue that the entry requirement being so low is the first problem. For all the bluster that Christian gatekeepers give when they say that it requires true repentance to be a Christian, there's no way of knowing true repentance from a really, really good act. And the second problem is that quality control within Christianity is incredibly lacking. Money-hungry preachers, out-and-out racists, and people who believe you can be baptized after you're dead, all alike, can hold a Bible in their hand, wear a crucifix necklace, put on a suit and tie, and who are you to argue? Maybe this is why there are well over 10,000 denominations of Christianity. But I will make the quip that Midwest America and the Deep South are the racist auntie and uncle of the Christian family who make awesome food, but also make an embarrassment of themselves at family gatherings. Fourth, you were given a new job. You now represent Christ with your words and actions to everyone you meet. Jeez. I wouldn't exactly call being a Christian a job. More of an unpaid internship. With an actual job, you actually get actually paid, not merely given stipends at irregular intervals. The harsh reality is that in Christianity, you only get paid only when you die, and only if you die during your time in the company 
unless you believe in the theology of once saved, always saved. But this idea here that you represent Christ, I need to ask, what does representing Christ actually mean? On one hand, if representing Christ is essentially being a good and charitable person, then by that definition, plenty of atheists and Muslims and Hindus and others represent Christ. And if that's the case, Christ is then nothing more than a philosophical embodiment of positive human ideals. On the other hand, the prosperity preachers say they represent Christ. The hate preachers who call for gays to be executed say they represent Christ. The apologists who dishonestly quote mine and edit videos to make non-Christians look like murderers in waiting say they represent Christ. Now, Christ could be a money-hungry, homophobic, duplicitous son of a bitch, but that's far from the pacifist hippie Jesus is represented as in Luke. But if representing Christ is something that only has meaning in the spiritual realm, then guess what? We're back to irrationalities and immaterials, which is the domain of religious cults. And just on all this, why is it that when a Christian is being kind and charitable, they're representing Christ? But when Christians are being asshats and repulsive and antisocial, that's merely their old sinful nature getting in the way. God wants to grow his family through you. I get that God wants to grow his family, but I don't get why. And I especially don't get why God needs people to grow it. If God was a deity that was limited and has to work within this system full of constraints, sure. But we're talking about a God that can cause walls to collapse at the mere sound of trumpets, who can cure diseases, raise people from the dead, relay conversations held in secret. But when it comes to convincing the world that he exists and that he's the best thing since sliced bread, that's when he needs people? Okay. The other thing that being in a religious cult does is get you to eschew your rational faculties in favour of warm, fuzzy feelings and platitudes. Also, why does an infinitely powerful God need people to have a relationship with? This, to me, just lends credence to the idea that man created God. Fifth. You also have new enemies, so expect trouble. Now we're getting culty again. Under this framework William Lane Craig is espousing, you now need to accept certain things without evidence or substantiation, namely the possibility, if not probability, that bad things are going to happen to you because you will be under attack from unseen, undetectable, and undiscernible forces apparently 
hell-bent on making sure you either die without Christ or that life with Christ is very miserable. And I remember this mentality very well from when I was a fundamentalist. You may have heard the term demon behind every bush. And what that means is that pretty much every negative feeling, negative emotion, or negative outcome you experience, be it sickness, car trouble, school trouble, depression, flights delayed, etc., was framed as the result of satanic disturbance, or in Christian parlance, a plan of the enemy. Very rarely did something bad happen because of mere dumb luck or natural circumstances. When I was a fundamentalist, I was constantly told by my pastors that I had a spirit of rebellion because I wouldn't always agree with their harebrained philosophy. Hence, Satan was using me to disrupt their plans to build God's church. And a woman I knew once blamed a flat tire she got while driving on a spirit of death that was trying to kill her. Wow, I didn't know demons could puncture tires. And maybe this is why creationists have a problem with the theory of evolution. They can't imagine a world where something isn't being manipulated by an unseen hand. Because when you're in the fundamentalist cult, there is almost always a spiritual cause to everything. So yes, when you're a Christian, expect trouble, including from God himself. One of the sayings I heard from my time as a Christian was, the most dangerous place to be is in the will of God. What this means is either that Satan will be constantly attacking you or that God himself will every so often engineer situations that test your faith and build your character because God speaks to us through our pain. God tests us in the furnace of affliction or that old chestnut. I must decrease and he must increase. If there was ever a slogan that encapsulated the ethos of an antipathic authoritarian cult, that was it. This world will pressure you to conform. One of the hallmarks of cults, and especially fundamentalist repressive religious ones, is this idea that anyone or anything that dares to prevent you from displaying and living out your faith is persecution. But yes, the world will pressure you to conform. Over the last few hundred years, we have been continually gaining more and more understanding about the world around us and how to make society work better. And newsflash, the Bible doesn't describe the natural world with any great accuracy, only piecemeal quotes here and there. Nor can we credit the Bible with making a society we would want to live in. We could obliquely credit certain Christians, but that's about it. And definitely not because the Bible is a divinely written book. 
because here's the bottom line. The only reason you would choose a biblical mindset over accepting the advances gained by methodological naturalism or over having a morality that doesn't judge people with regards to sexuality and gender is because you've reduced knowledge and understanding to be a moral issue, not a matter of facts and research. So yes, the world will pressure you if you're a Christian. You can only kick against the goads for so long. Your old nature will betray you. I don't get it. Did not Jesus defeat sin on the cross? Did not Jesus defeat Satan? Did we not get new life as per William Lane Craig's first point? Did not Paul say, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me? You can't have it both ways. You can't say you now have new life and that you're reborn and you're a new creation, but then excuse your failings by saying your old nature will betray you. Either you have new life or you merely have your old life with some lipstick slapped on it. And the forces of darkness will oppose you. Scary scariness from the big scary thing. Don't let the big scary thing get you. I can't help but think that Christians are compelled to call the forces of darkness the forces of darkness because those who wrote the Bible and set the doctrines are trying to stop you realizing how evil their own actions have been. So the doctrine forcibly compels alienation and marginalization of outsiders and opposition to prevent believers from honestly comprehending the big picture. Because let's ask this question. In the Bible, who has killed more people, God or Satan? And I'll give you a few seconds to come up with a straight answer while I leave you with this. If someone doesn't want you to think for yourself, you might just be in a cult. But you also have a powerful new ally. Super Jesus to the rescue! Just don't expect this powerful new ally to show up when you need him. He's publicity shy and seems happy to tinker silently behind the scenes, never in any observable manner. And William Lane Craig does fail to mention that you will also hear what I call Christian miracle propaganda. Fanciful tales of Jesus doing wonderful things, ranging from curing cancer, helping someone get pregnant, getting someone out of a court case, and so on and so on, all in the power of his name. The instant you committed your life to Christ, God's Spirit moved in and took up permanent residence in your heart and mind. And again, it begins to get culty. Because we're again talking about immaterials and irrationals. How do you define such things, let alone prove them? 
If a random person walked up to you on the street and said with absolute conviction and a straight face, the spirit of the most powerful being in the universe has moved in and taken residence in my heart and mind, you'd go, what weird cult are you in? So what makes it different when eminent Christian philosopher William Lane Craig says it? Allow him to empower and guide you as your journey unfolds, keeping you on the right path. What is the right path, aside from not pissing off God? If you stumble and do wrong, confess it immediately to God. Claim his forgiveness. Claiming God's forgiveness sounds weird. Like, in a marriage, you can't just claim your wife's forgiveness if you did something horrible like cheat on her. And you wouldn't claim innocence on behalf of the judge. But when it comes to God, who is infinitely just, apparently, all we need to do is believe we're forgiven, and that's it. Are we compelling God to forgive us like we're the boss of him? Does God already know that we'll sin and that he'll forgive us? So many questions. And yield yourself anew to God's spirit. Weird, like do you get all your HP and MP back? Do you level up like an altered beast? Or do you just lie there waiting for God to do something to you? That last one doesn't sound half creepy. Hmm. The productive Christian does not rely on his own efforts. Rather, he relies on God's spirit. Which then begs the question, why doesn't God just do everything himself? This all just sounds more like Christian hocus pocus and doesn't answer the question of why an infinitely powerful deity needs humans to do his will. As the Apostle Paul wrote, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. When a branch is connected to the vine, it just produces fruit naturally. On the other hand, the unproductive Christian is performance-oriented. He tries to be good enough by his own grinding self-effort, but feels guilty because he can never do enough. Trying to live the Christian life in your own strength just makes you miserable. Doesn't sound like a cult at all. Another one of the common characteristics of a religious cult is not only an us-versus-them mentality, but also this idea that if you are either out of the group or that you've left the group or maybe not even in the group enough, you deserve your failure and destruction. One of the differences between a cult and people who genuinely care is that the cult will say, you can't be successful without us. But people who truly care will say, I want you to succeed and to be independent. So guess which one William Lane Craig's Christianity falls into? So, how do you rely on the Holy Spirit on a daily basis? First, as soon as you are aware of any sin in your life, confess it to God. Don't hide and rationalize your disobedience. 
God is eager to forgive and draw you near again. Then recommit yourself, body and soul, in continual daily surrender to God. Which then begs the question, why doesn't God just do everything himself? This all just sounds more like Christian hocus-pocus and doesn't answer the question of why an infinitely powerful deity needs humans to do his will. God is eager to draw near and forgive, yet just before, William Lane Craig also said that we were under God's just condemnation, showing again that either theologians don't know what they're talking about, or that God is half-assed about what he wants. And as per my point before, why does a Christian's sin not put them back into condemnation? I mean, if God hates sin, you can't say all sin is equally bad before God. If God is willing to overlook some sin from some people, but condemn sin in other people, as I said, sin was never the problem. It's God's arbitrary feeling towards us. And daily continual surrender sounds like obey the cult. Hmm. Ask his spirit to guide you and strengthen you. As this spirit-filled life within you grows, you will be gradually transformed. You'll hunger for the truth of God's word, the Bible. Begin reading it today and invite God's Spirit to teach you as you go. If someone tried to tell me that Christianity isn't an esoteric cult, I'd just quote that from William Lane Craig to prove them wrong. The phrase, hunger for the truth of God's word, sounds exactly like the cheerleading for Jesus I came to grow sick of. It makes so many assumptions that fall apart when we scrutinize them. Just like that other famous argument of William Lane Craig's, the Kalam. And it is ironic that some of the most ardent atheists out there are people who were originally Christians who hungered for the word of God and tried to be better Christians, but saw through the fundamentalist cheerleading and realized the game was up. And on this thing about God's spirit teaching you as you go. I know that the toxic fundies on social media love saying that they get revelation from the Holy Spirit. But when pressed, they are unable to describe a methodology of how they differentiate between their own opinion and the Holy Spirit's. It's as if they're one and the same thing. You'll also learn to live in community with other believers. Just like in a cult, and sometimes literally. I remember from my time in my charismatic fundamentalist cult, while we didn't literally live together, everyone knew where you lived, and they also knew why you didn't come to church that weekend, to the point that ministry houses were encouraged. My particular church had a focus on international students, and it was relatively common that a group of students slash church members would live together in a rented place that also had enough space to host a dozen people for weekly Bible study. 
like the amount of space you could have for weekly Bible study was one of the determining criteria for whether God wanted you to rent that place or not. The other thing that I notice is that the video William Lane Craig is playing for this monologue presents every Christian here as smiling and peaceful and just plain, ordinary, salt-of-the-earth types. But this by far is not representative of the whole body of Christianity. Most of the Christians I have personally come across are fairly humble and ordinary people, and some of my best friends online are Christians. But this type of ordinary salt-of-the-earth Christian is betrayed by hate mongers such as Greg Locke, Stephen Anderson and Matt Powell, by the crazy charismatics such as Kevin Zadai, Kat Kerr and Joyce Meyer, by the money-hungry preachers such as Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar and Robert Tilton, by the sex creeps such as Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias and Bill Gotthard, by the willingness to protect reputations rather than restore victims as displayed by the Hillsong Church, the Catholic Church and the Duggar family, by the intellectual dishonesty of people like Ken Ham, Frank Turek and Lee Strobel, and by the willingness to mistreat family members as we see from Michael Behe, who exiled his son after his son came out as an atheist, by David and Louise Turpin, a California couple who mistreated 12 of their children in the name of religious indoctrination, and the Jehovah's Witnesses who have an entire policy written around shutting out family members. And remember, each of us is a work in progress. Why does God need to make us a work in progress? Didn't William Lane Craig say right at the very top that we got new life? And doesn't Paul say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Like, guys, get your story straight. So be patient with the shortcomings of your brothers and sisters, just as God is patient with you. That phrase, be patient with the shortcomings of your brothers and sisters, is essentially a way of compelling you to forgive, no matter how heinous the thing that the other person did to you. Regardless of what happened, you are compelled to forgive. And especially if you don't forgive that other person straight away, in some churches or in some church groups, that is essentially equivalent to losing your salvation. And that kind of toxic mentality becomes very painful when, for example, I personally know people who have been sexually assaulted in church environments, they were compelled to forgive the person that assaulted them or to hush it all up so as to not sully the name or the family of the person that performed the heinous action of sexual assault. Following Christ is the adventure of a lifetime. Your day-to-day -day experience may not get easier in fact, you may face greater hardships, but you will sense the deep satisfaction of knowing God and enjoying Him forever. Sounds like the deal of a lifetime. You get both hard times and an imaginary friend.
or are there three imaginary friends? Not only that, this imaginary friend supposedly loves you, but isn't beneath deliberately inflicting suffering on you because deep down, you're horrible and need to be purged. And on that point, I'm going to discuss my take on Christian perspectives on suffering, starting off with a skit. God, why am I suffering? Because you live in a fallen world, and for humans to not go through suffering, they would have to give up free will. God, can I ask, is there suffering in heaven? Hell, I mean heaven, no. Do people in heaven have free will? Yes, otherwise they wouldn't be able to love me and worship me forever. So you can make a place where there is both no suffering and free will? Yes. Then why am I suffering? It's Satan's fault. But you created Satan, right? Yes. And you knew what he would do, right? Yes. And you defeated Satan, right? Yes. Then why is he making my life hard, and why aren't you doing anything to stop it? Because you need to go through trials and testing. Why do I need to go through trials and testing? So that you know that I know you love me. But you're God. You know the end from the beginning. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You should already know the answer to that question without making my life hard. Besides, if Satan is doing your bidding, doesn't that make him not evil anymore? Or does it make you evil for using him? But you need to get rid of the effects of the evil curse you were born with. A curse I hate. But didn't Jesus' sacrifice defeat that curse? Didn't Jesus take up our sins on the cross? Didn't he become sin so that sin would no longer reign? Oh man, I really need to rewrite the Bible. Everyone I've spoken to so far has the complete wrong idea. No wonder there are so many atheists. In short, fundamentalist Christian views on suffering tend to be either theological goalpost shifting or there, there, think happy thoughts of Jesus. Because in Christianity, and especially in fundamentalist versions of it, you suffer either because of the fall, because Satan is trying to derail your life, because God is testing you, or something, something sin. None of these, however, want to make your life longer and reduce unnecessary suffering. And what William Lane Craig says here in this point also reminds me of those people that try to get around the problem of evil by saying stuff like, God will repay our suffering in heaven. Or, God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. Or, in William Lane Craig's own words, We are not in a good position to assess the probability of whether God has morally sufficient reasons for the evils that occur. As finite persons, we are limited in time, space, intelligence, and insight. But the transcendent and sovereign God sees the end from the beginning 
and providentially orders history so that his purposes are ultimately achieved through human free decisions. In order to achieve his ends, God may have to put up with certain evils along the way. Evils which appear pointless to us within our limited framework may be seen to have been justly permitted within God's wider framework. Or in short, we finite people just couldn't possibly understand enough about God to know why God allows bad things. But somehow, the finite person William Lane Craig can come up with a resolution to the Euthyphro dilemma by stating that God is the very definition of good. It's a miracle! These kind of bad platitudes from William Lane Craig and others reflect a mentality that doesn't look to alleviate suffering. It either tells you to suck it up so you get credit in the eyes of God, tells you your problems aren't that big in the scheme of things because a specific Jewish man died 2,000 years ago, or God allows suffering in your life because reasons. How does any of that help women experiencing domestic violence? What about people who suffer depression? What about parents of children shot in American schools? God allowed your child to take a bullet to the head because it's part of God's bigger plan. If God's plan requires children to be shot in the head, it's not a very good plan. If you think children being shot in the head is a great plan, or if you lack the cojones to think that's a problem, congratulations, you're also part of the cult. And all of this is the exact opposite of the humanist philosophy. Humanism is about promoting well-being and independent thinking and reducing suffering and using knowledge to make your life better. The opposite of a cult and the opposite of William Lane Craig's Christianity, which may just happen to be the same thing.